What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Five, four, three, two, one. But who's counting, right? His name is Major. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Major Garrett. From the nation's capital. Major, fantastic. It's the takeout. This is a major achievement. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major Garrett. Yes, CBS. Yes, hi. Major Garrett. Major, that's nonsense. And you should know better. Is Major out of the doghouse? <laughs> the answer is yes. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett. Thanks for finding the takeout, however you find it. You know, our early adopters, podcast platforms, but a great radio stations around the country, numbering more than 70. Sirius XM, POTUS Channel 124 is one of them. Of course, on CBS News Streaming and Paramount+. Plus. Cafe du Parc is our host restaurant this week. Always good to be here. The last time we were here, Doris Kearns Goodwin was our guest. Man, was that a great dinner many, many years ago, long before COVID. Glad to be out and about again. So, ladies and gentlemen, you're familiar with this show. There are times when we talk to people who have particularly difficult jobs in Washington, D.C. Not every job is as hard as another job in Washington. This week's guest has a tough job. A job where achievements are rare, meaningful, but hard fought, and conversation before those achievements actually happen, very limited, very strained, for lots of reasons you'll find out about. So, that's kind of a teaser. Who is our guest? Josh Geltzer with the National Security Council. He's a Deputy Homeland Security Advisor to President Biden. What is his tough job? The biggest part of a large portfolio he has on the National Security Council is dealing with wrongfully detained Americans, which means he has been dealing with Brittany Griner, Austin Tice, Paul Whelan, and lots of other Americans, their families, their friends, and all of the pressures, diplomatic, political, and otherwise, attendant upon their fate. Josh, it's good to see you. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for the chance to be here. So let's just go down the list here. Um, what can you tell us about Brittany Griner, the situation, and how the administration views the current set of offers on the table? So maybe I'll start by, by just stepping back and, and emphasizing that these cases, whether those are hostages, whether those are wrongful detainees held by governments, but in a way that our government deems lawful, unlawful or wrongful, these have the eye of the president, the priority of him and his whole administration, the Secretary of State, the National Security Advisor. They are almost by definition extraordinarily challenging. The, the governments that, that use human beings as political pawns, as bargaining chips, are uh, doing so with... with um, full intent. With full intent, and it turns out when you get across the table and attempt to negotiate with them, that, that wrongfulness, that lack of good faith continues to the negotiation. So it's wrong to begin with, but it makes it quite hard to resolve them. That being said, the, the priority I mentioned means that we, we keep trying till we do resolve them, when we work till we bring home someone like, like a Trevor Reed who's been brought home from Russia. Now, 
Uh, the public has heard Secretary of State Blinken indicate publicly that the U.S. government has put a significant offer on the table that, in our view, would resolve and should resolve the situation with respect to those being held wrongfully by the Russian government. We now think it's incumbent on the Russians to be responsive to that and to work with us in resolving an unacceptable situation. How that gets discussed, how that gets worked out, as you rightly previewed, happens largely in private. Mm -hmm. But we did think it was important for the public to understand that we have put something on the table that we think should be added. And that is different. This idea, this publicity about an offer, that's different. Usually that's not known until it's resolved. Why that choice? So Why that decision? I, it won't surprise you that, that we won't sh- show uh, all of our cards with respect to that. But I will say a couple things. We only did it because we thought it would be helpful. That public acknowledgement would be helpful to shaking loose a situation that we continue to regard as unacceptable. And we do think one of the, the values of it is that those who rightly follow these issues, because they care the same way we care, could understand that we are doing the work that should resolve these situations. And it, it takes two. It takes a, another government to work with us in reaching a, a satisfactory resolution. So I want to help my audience understand a distinction that you made, because I think it's important and it sometimes gets glossed over in this conversation. Hostages wrongfully detained. What is the distinction and why does it matter? So hostages are generally held not by governments. They are held by terrorists, by criminals, by pirates. Uh, wrongful or unlawful detainees. Captain Phillips. There was a movie about that. That's right. And, and, and many, uh, many folks will remember the awful um, situation with ISIS holding yeah. Americans and others uh, hostage at, at the peak of their control in, in, in Syria a number of years ago. Now, there are also instances where governments acknowledge holding uh, Americans and others, but the U.S. government deems that to be unlawful or wrongful. Now, based on a set of factors laid out in federal law, laid out in something called the Levinson Act, which passed in uh, December 2020, and indicates that based on how that government is approaching it, maybe based on the publicity they're giving it, maybe based on the punishment they're seeking, maybe based on innocence in the first place, that that set of factors must be assessed by the State Department to determine that even though a government has acknowledged that they're holding someone, we as a government regard that detention as as wrongful, and we will work to bring that American home. For those who are deeply interested in the Brittany Griner case, Sherelle Griner is one of them, her spouse. Many in the sports community, many in the larger community of America who've gravitated toward this. What would you tell them about what level of optimism or pessimism they should currently possess. You know, I I might pivot from that to talk about relentlessness. We will work at this as a government until we do what we're committed to do, which is bringing home those who should be with their families, with their loved ones, with their friends. Any day is too long. Uh, We never ask for, for patience, but these are hard matters. And as I indicated, the same actors who engage in this sort of conduct in the world, governments, terrorist groups, then make it extraordinarily hard to resolve the awful situations that they have deliberately created in the first place. But the main message that we do convey privately, and we talk often with family members. Do you do this talking? I do it. Others do it. Uh, There are dedicated offices across our government that were generated precisely to keep 
a priority on these issues, including the special presidential envoy for hostage affairs, currently Roger Carstens yes. at the State yes. Department, the hostage recovery fusion cell, which sits at the FBI but has representatives from across our government in the room together every day working on resolving the hostage cases. But sometimes the Secretary of State, the National Security Advisor, and even the President, we engage with families because we want families to understand a few things. We want them to understand first and most fundamentally that we care. We want them to understand what we're trying to do and what we know about their loved ones. And we want them to be partners in the effort to bring them those loved ones home. Not an easy question to answer, but some have said, if it were LeBron James and not Brittany Griner, he'd already be back. I think any American who's deemed wrongfully detained should be back before they're ever taken, and that we as a government would bring the same commitment to working to do what we can, including making painful choices. And remember, the president indicated that what he had to do to bring Trevor Reed home, mm -hmm. whose life we feared for at the time, he said, the president in his public statement, it took a painful choice. It took the release of somebody who had been duly convicted with due process of law in the U.S. courts, but he made that choice because we were able to bring someone home. That commitment extends to people regardless of their fame. But the implication being we'd move bigger mountains if it were LeBron. I think we are moving this mountain as well as we can, recognizing that it is not ours to move alone. There is a Russian government that created the situation. There is a Russian government that is treating Paul Whelan, Brittany Griner unacceptably. And ultimately, we will continue to press offers, even painful ones, till we can resolve if these situations. If you listen to talk radio about Brittany Griner, one of the things you'll hear is people say, well, she had the stuff on her. She broke the law. There's a process there. And that process, to their minds, looks semi-lawful. Why did we classify it as unlawful? So that's a determination made by the State Department. As, as, as you previewed, I won't, I won't be able to get into every bit of their analysis. But let me give you a sense of how that process works, because it's now set out in, in federal law in the Levinson Act. The uh, Special Presidential Envoy's Office works with Consular Affairs, the State Department, as well as the lawyers at state, as well as the regional part of state in this case, those who handle Russia matters. And they look at the 11 factors laid out in the Levinson Act. And actual innocence is one of those factors, but remember, there are 10 more. Mm -hmm. And those can include how a foreign government is publicizing a case, uh. how they are treating the detainee, what sentence they are seeking and, and getting, and whether that looks at all normal for, let's say, a citizen of their own country. And they make a recommendation to the Secretary of State as to whether a detention should be classified as wrongful or unlawful. They also reevaluate that because facts can change and our insight can change, but they reevaluate that and the, the major uh, upshot of that is that for any American held in the world, there's a certain bare minimum we try to guarantee. We try to get them humane treatment, try to get them consular access. But for those who make it into the wrongful detention category, which is relatively few, mm -hmm. quite few of the Americans held around the world, we also take the next step of working to bring them home. That is the voice of Josh Getzler, right? Geltzer. Geltzer, forgive me. Josh Geltzer with the National Security Council. More on Brittany Griner, Paul Whelan, Austin Tice, and other Americans wrongfully detained, plus other issues. When we come back, I'm Major Garrett. Segment two of The Takeout in just one second. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Carvana. 
from CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back to The Takeout. We are at Cafe du Parc, part of the Willard Hotel in Washington, D.C., right by the White House. That's convenient for our guests. Josh? Geltzer. Geltzer, thank you. Rhymes with seltzer. I'll get that by the end of the show. I promise you, ladies and gentlemen. Works for the National Security Council as we talked in great depth in the first segment. Wrongfully detained Americans. Brittany Griner is certainly the most headline grabbing, but headline grabbing is one and only one dimension of this entire issue. On this program, not too long ago, those of you who are regular listeners know we talked to Mark and Deborah Tice, the powerful, well-centered, strong Christian parents of Austin Tice. It's one of the most memorable interviews I've done on this program. Um, what can you tell us about Austin Tice? Well, we have just come up on the 10-year mark ten of, years, of Austin's ten detention, years. which is uh, appalling and extraordinary to, to say. And you know, the president noted this in, in a statement he, he released. I have known Austin's parents for far too long, uh, mm-hmm. in a sense. Longer than you would prefer. And I'm sure longer than they would prefer to at least uh, deal with the government on these, these terms. You know, one thing we, we made quite clear as a government in our statement at, at the 10-year mark is that we are prepared, indeed eager, to work through directly with a Syrian government. Which, the parent, which Mark and Deborah asked on my show that that be the declaration from this administration, that you will work directly. And we're prepared to do so. Mm-hmm. We, we, uh, our, What's our the commitment, holdup? The holdup is, is on their side. And again, uh, there, there's a limit to how much I'll, I'll say here, but the appetite on our side to get face-to-face with those with whom we believe we can resolve this matter and bring Austin home after all these years, that appetite is, is there. I want to share with something, with the audience, something that I intuit, but I don't know because I don't work in this space, but I intuit. The Syrian government says we don't have Austin ties, which may technically be true. It appears that they know who has him, but it's not part of the government so they don't technically have him, correct? Here's what I'll say, Major. We are quite confident that the right actor for us as a government to talk to, to bring Austin home and resolve this, is the Syrian government. And we are eager to have that conversation, and it is a conversation we have tried to generate and that we will keep trying to generate because we see that as really the only viable pathway towards resolving a situation that never should have arisen in the first place, mm-hmm. that certainly should not have gone on for 10 years, and that it is uh, overdue to get resolved. And Deborah and Mark on this program said they were absolutely certain Austin is still alive. Do you share that certainty? Here's what I'll say on that. Those of us who work on these issues, who work on Austin's case in particular, go at our work every day on the assumption and the belief that Austin is alive. That is how we go about our work. That is how we continue to try to find new avenues to resolve the case. That is how we go at the proposition you and I have been talking about, about seeking the sort of direct engagement with the Syrian government that we believe is a necessary next step in resolving this. That's how we go about this work every day. So for those in the audience who might wonder, when the U.S. government says we want to talk to the Syrian government, how does that happen? So I'll, I'll, I'll zoom out a little bit from, from answering that in detail, but I'll say this. We have made clear our, our desire, our eagerness to have that conversation both directly and indirectly through various avenues, and we will keep making that clear. Mm-hmm. What can you tell us about Paul Whelan? I've, on CBS News streaming, have talked to David Whelan, uh, Paul's brother, on, an, on tw- two occasions. Uh, Elizabeth, 
Paul's sister, someone you deal with, the U.S. government deals with. Like all families in this space, they are torn. They, they, they want to defer, but they also want to press you and push you. They live in a very ambiguous space of how much publicity is helpful, how much is hurtful. It's a grind for these families, an unimaginable grind, it appears to me. What can you tell us about Paul Whelan? I think un- unimaginable is, is exactly the right word. Those of us I'm not who hyping care this, about, am I? No, I don't think so. I, I think you're, you're phrasing it and, and characterizing it quite fairly, which is for those who wake up every morning thinking about the conditions their, their loved one uh, must be in and what it will take to bring that loved one home. Unimaginable seems exactly the right word. And I try to convey that when I have the... And they live in this space of ambiguity. They, they don't, there's no roadmap for them. There isn't. Now, what we try to do as a government is, where we can, give them information. Information, if we have it, about their loved one and their status. Information about the broader context. And information that we share often just with families about what we are doing, what our current effort is, what our secondary effort is, what our fallback is, so that they are partners in this recovery effort, which is what they want to be. And you understand at times families become frustrated and come to people like me to express that frustration. Of course. I often say to to families when I do have the opportunity to speak with them. Oh, and breakfast has arrived. That's very good. Thank you very much. Right dead center. There we go. You actually take the saucer. I'll just use the cup without saucer protection. Thank you. you. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Major, what I, what I say to families is I don't expect them to be happy with the government, satisfied with the government, pleased with the government until their loved one is home. And even then, that's just us doing their our job. Right. Um, they're welcome to be frustrated. They're welcome to be concerned. They're welcome to be distraught at times. And it, I imagine as someone who deals with them on a regular basis, you ride this up and down process with them. It's very personal. You know, many things that those of us who work in homeland security and national security work on, you work on it in the abstract. You try to save lives or protect people in the abstract. Think about trying to protect people from a terrorist attack, Mm -hmm. where by definition, the strategy of terrorism is to try to make everyone fearful. You don't know who might be a victim next. This is the opposite of that. This are, these are very particular Granular. people. Absolutely. And you know their family members, mm-hmm. and you know about them and their stories and why they were where they were when they got uh, wrongfully taken. And uh, it does create a personal element to this work. Paul Whelan is in a prison camp. Is that correct? So, so far as we understand? That's right. What do we know about his health? I, I think we don't have... Um, particular reason beyond a baseline of concern, which is that those in those uh, camps do not get the sort of treatment we as a government try to give to those who, again, quite differently, have gone through or are going through our judicial process with due process and adequate representation. And so we are always concerned, even in the absence of particular information of the type we had for Trevor Reed that that Mm -hmm. further increased our worry about his health. We start with a baseline that they shouldn't be there, and we're worried about right. them while they're there. Right. And Paul Whelan and Brittany Griner are tied together in this offer, correct? Well, we have two Americans who are deemed wrongfully detained in Russia right now, right. and we are working extraordinarily hard to bring them both home. You can uh, connect the dots on that answer, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, <laughs> he can't say it, but we just heard more or less ratification of that. Um, Before we switch to other topics, which we will pick up in segment three, 
Any other things that you want the audience to know about this particular set of dilemmas and these particular set of Americans? I would like to emphasize how much we as a government are trying not only to resolve the current cases, but stop the next ones from ever happening. How do you do that? Very hard, but we've taken a number of steps. First of all, early in his time at the State Department, Secretary of State Blinken became a real global champion for a a Canadian-launched initiative against arbitrary detention, trying to build a global norm in which countries commit not to engage in this sort of behavior and commit to outing it, denouncing it when it occurs. That norm is important, and we're going to do a lot to keep strengthening it. In the past few so weeks... So countries that aren't yeah. involved get involved publicly by saying this is wrong. This is unacceptable right. to, to anyone's citizens. The president also issued an executive order a number of weeks ago now in which he strengthened the tools available for punishing those who engage in this sort of behavior, including... Um, making available sanctions that the Levinson Act, which passed a couple years ago, generates as a matter of of, uh, authority, which we can now, as an executive branch, work through with our colleagues at the Treasury Department, the State Department, to um, punish those who are involved in hostage-taking or wrongful detention through things like financial sanctions or visa denials. I'll also add that the State Department a few weeks ago rolled out a new indicator, a D-indicator, that they attach to travel advisories to indicate wrongful detention risks in countries where that risk is present for Americans. So we are trying to warn Americans better about this risk and punish those responsible. Last name rhymes with Seltzer, Josh Geltzer, right? That's right. National Security Council. When we come back, we're going to talk about Twitter, national security, drones, border security, Al-Zawahiri, lots of other topics. I'm Major Garrett Cafe du Parc at the Willard Hotel, our host restaurant, Stay tuned for segment three of The Takeout in just a couple of minutes. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back to The Takeout. Cafe du Parc at the Willard Hotel is our host restaurant. Great to be out and about again. Josh Geltzer is our guest, Deputy National Security Advisor to President Biden on Homeland Security issues. We talked a lot about wrongfully detained Americans. I want to shift our focus ever so slightly Josh, this week there was um, evidence provided to the government, Congress and other entities, lots of regulatory agencies, from someone who was a chief security officer at Twitter, said that their security systems are so lax that there is ample opportunity for lots of people, thousands of people potentially at Twitter, to gain access to the platform in a way that could be harmful to users, but also, the whistleblower said, harmful to national security, in the sense that governments listen to and see communication flow on Twitter and react to that. And if that is hacked or somehow manipulated, it could create a national security concern. That's all what the whistleblower said. To the degree you have visibility on this and are capable of commenting, what's your perspective? So this falls into the category you were kind enough to preview, where I'll probably step back a bit and leave things that are in law enforcement and regulatory channels to those channels. But I'll say this, zooming way out here, the private sector 
in various ways is a part of our homeland security and can be a part of strengthening that or can be a part of vulnerabilities. Again, this is true in various ways. Think about airlines. Think about critical infrastructure owners and operators. All of these uh, are overwhelmingly in the hands of private sector mm -hmm. actors, but depending on how they're handled, they can strengthen our homeland security and our national security or they can generate vulnerabilities. And we as a government try to work hard to be a good partner too the private sector. Now that often means sharing information with them, mm -hmm. cybersecurity threats, physical security threats. It can mean offering them training. It can mean helping to mentor them in ways we think they can approach it. Often it's their choice how to take or leave that. But it is a large part of, especially Homeland Security, to get the right information, the right warnings, the right threats right. in the hands of those in the private sector. Those are uh, all applicable but largely generic observations. This thing from Twitter sounded to me like kind of a headline grabber, like, whoa. It sounded to me like it would rise above those true, applicable, but also broad and generic statements you just made. So I, I will still stay away from the details of, of something in other channels, but even, even to zoom in slightly and to say social media platforms are clearly a part of that private sector that we need to care about as a government. It, it, is not, it is not breaking any news to say that in 2016, social media platforms were a, a locus, a site of activity, foreign malign activity, that in, in, especially in hindsight, got characterized as election interference. And you can say even since 2016, governments do pay attention, monitor, and sometimes react based on things seen on Twitter, and so therefore their security of those things matters a great deal to the U.S. government. They are a part of the discourse and a part of the dialogue, and for those who would want to contort or infect our, what is essentially our American political discourse and dialogue, those who would want to distort the provision of accurate information, whether that was about the census, whether that's about voting, mm -hmm. all of that matters to us as, as a government, even as it does happen on platforms that belong to the private sector. So, um, my wonderful producer, uh, one of the many volunteers for this show, Sarah Cook, uh, provided some information to me that has come through your office about drones and sporting events and venues, which I hadn't put the two together. Run with that, if you will. John. I appreciate the chance to, because th this is quite important. So, the Biden administration relatively recently released a first-ever national action plan for dealing with the threats that can be posed by drone activity. And I should emphasize, those threats take, in a sense, two different forms. Those can be deliberately malevolent intentions. In other words, we've seen bad actors weaponize drones. For example, at our own border, we've seen drug cartels weaponize drones against law enforcement, against rival cartels, against civilians. And then going outside our borders, we've seen weaponized drones used for assassination attempts even. Mm -hmm. So that's one category. The other category are those who are not ill-intentioned, but whose desire for a great photograph of a sporting event, a great photograph of a NASA vehicle as it takes off or, or returns, mm -hmm. can risk human lives and can cause millions of dollars of damage if their drone is in the wrong place at the wrong time. So our national action plan aims at stepping up our game against this problem. And the first piece of it is a very detailed legislative proposal that we have sent over to our colleagues on Capitol Hill 
uh, renewing certain authorities that are set to expire in this space, including the authorities that allow the federal government to be responsive to requests to engage in counter UAS support at stadiums so, and so, go further. Yeah. So break this down. So I'm sitting in a stadium. What are you telling me is the potential threat and what the government should be able to do about it? And imagine a particularly high-profile event. Imagine the Super Bowl. Okay. Right now, uh, those who are responsible at the state and local level mm -hmm. for securing that event will ask the federal government for counter UAS support, counter drone support, to detect drones that get in airspace that they are not permitted to be in right. and to so work to resolve permission them. for that, right. They need to ask the federal government for permission because how we detect and address that threat involves certain signals the detection and, and um, uh, dealing with otherwise violates criminal law. And so you need statutory authority to be exempt from that otherwise applicable criminal law. Right. And they come to us as a federal government, in particular to law enforcement, and say, help us. Now, right now, the federal government is able to respond to only a tiny, tiny percentage of those requests. Why? But they're important. Sheer resource and bandwidth. Okay. Um, if the current legislative authorities expire, we can respond to 0% of those requests. Imagine a Super Bowl in years to come in which the answer from the federal government is, sorry, we can't help you with that counter UAS support, despite the tens of thousands of people who will be packed into that stadium. We want to go in the opposite direction. Our legislative proposal not only would reauthorize expiring authorities, it would introduce carefully calibrated steps to increase the pool of those available to provide this sort of support, including a pilot program where states and locals could do more themselves with approved equipment, with approved training, with the right oversight to protect people, let's say, at a stadium from the threat that might be posed by drone activity. Right. And the threat would be not taking a picture, but shooting somebody. It could be, but it could be even someone who just wants to take a picture, who flies in the path of a blimp covering the game and causes catastrophe. Right. Or, or causes an uncertainty which requires an evacuation. Exactly right. And, you know, this is not hypothetical. This is real. Here at, at Reagan National Airport in, in D.C., there was, and this was covered publicly uh, about a month ago, drone activity that had uh, the effect of needing some incoming flights to adjust their paths to deal with it and led to a, a pause uh, and a readjustment until the situation was resolved. That's the most minor of repercussions, but it can still cause really high risk. It can uh, cause passengers to be late. It can cause millions of dollars in damages. It can get much worse from there. So I want to tee this up because uh, it will be a campaign issue in the midterms. Many Americans uh, believe that immigration is a national security and homeland security issue. And uh, if you look at the polling data, not just among Republicans, but among a sizable number of independents, there is a pretty noticeable dissatisfaction with the administration's approach to immigration. And if you take any time to sort of listen to Republicans, they describe it relentlessly as a crisis, that it is uncontrolled, that it is open borders, and that the fentanyl and other drugs are pouring in, illegals are pouring in. This is their rhetoric, not mine. We're going to tee this conversation up now, and we're going to continue it in segment four. But I respond to that biting criticism of the administration's approach to immigration. So the three watchwords of our approach to, to migration has been humane, orderly, and secure. And we think we, we can do all three, despite it being obviously a challenge. And would you say issue. what's been observed so far fits those three things, humane, orderly, and secure? I, I think that remains our aspiration, and we can need to continue to implement it, as in many areas. Unachieved aspiration. We will continue to work towards it day after day. I, I would point here 
to the steps we've taken to recognize what this really is, which is not just a challenge of the southwest border of the United States. It is a hemispheric challenge. People are on the move in this hemisphere in historic numbers. And President Biden gathered leaders from across the hemisphere in Los Angeles earlier this summer, where one thing they did was commit to a declaration collectively to step up to stabilize those populations, to support them, that goes to it being humane, but also to work to enforce the law at various borders. More of our conversation on Biden administration and immigration. We come back. I'm Major Garrett. Segment for The Takeout in just one second. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back to The Takeout. You know, for those of you who are watching on Paramount Plus, uh, CBS News streaming, you know, there is an injustice to the way this show works. And uh, food injustice is, I get to ask the questions and then chow down while the guest answers. And the guest has very little time to eat. That's just one of the injustices built into the show. I'm not a purveyor of injustice generally, but I do acknowledge it when it exists. And so, Josh, my apologies. You're, you're working on your omelet as best you can. I've destroyed my Belgian waffles. They're already gone. The table's already clear. Continuing on immigration. Um, I guarantee you, listeners of this program in cities across this country will hear you say humane, orderly, and secure, and say it may be humane, but they, it doesn't look to them orderly or secure. And the numbers of those stopped at the border are at historic levels. That's not contestable. That's not a debatable fact. And they would say that's evidence that this is not orderly and not secure. What would you tell them? So, so here's where I would, I, I would zoom out and put it in context. You know, we have a, a hemisphere in which uh, a number of historic factors, uh, the COVID pandemic, Uh, economic uh, challenges are leading people to be on the move in in also historic numbers. But they would say one of the reasons that that has happened is because a new administration was perceived correctly or incorrectly by those who were considering migrating to not do it during the Trump years because they thought the door would be slammed in their face and they perceived, again, rightly or wrongly, that the door would either swing wide open or be open a crack, and it was a better time to do it once the administration's changed. Now, you may or, well, just evaluate that. Well, I, I think we're trying to, to be responsible in various different ways here. One is generating lawful pathways. So we worked very hard to make H-2A, H-2B, seasonal worker visas available at also unprecedented Those are a numbers. special kind of visa, That's seasonal right. workers. There's orderly processing. People come, they work right. hard, they fill a lot of labor yes, gaps that our, our country is experiencing right now. And, uh, and then they, they, uh, they depart and they may come back for the next season. Um, we've worked hard to make those lawful pathways more easily accessible, more, uh, more generous in numbers, and to utilize them. 
At the same time, we have stepped up actual enforcement operations for those who are not using lawful pathways, and we've worked very hard with uh, others across the region to do so. This is part of a, a broader approach to utilizing the president's leadership, especially in this region, though really globally, to get others uh, at the leader level and down to treat this as the shared challenge it represents. You're not telling people who are dissatisfied that they should just come around and be satisfied, are you? I think what I'm saying is is that dealing with a, a, a hemisphere on the move is a challenge as well as an opportunity, and we are trying to do so in a way that makes sense for us as a country, but also makes sense as one of among uh, a number of countries across a region grappling with these historic numbers. Let me ask you something that is specific to Washington, D.C. and New York City. Two governors in this country, Doug Ducey, Republican of Arizona, and Greg Abbott, Republican of Texas, have solicited private donations, private donations nationwide, to pay for buses that are busting people from the border in a status of they have an adjudication process awaiting them, but they're not letting them stay there. They're busing them to two cities in America, New York City and Washington. And on a somewhat regular basis, about 10 o'clock at night in Washington, D.C., buses arrive at Union Station with migrants who don't know anyone, who have no connection to anything, who have no money. And the city of Washington, D.C., and similarly the city of New York, is grappling, struggling to try to figure out what to do with this population dumped on its doorstep. And the governors say, well, we're relocating the problem. We're sick and tired of that problem only existing in our states, and we are intentionally, with private money, relocating. What is the administration's perspective on this? So you've heard the White House call this the political stunt that, that it is, and the political stunt that really uses human beings as, as political pawns for that stunt. But I'll say a couple additional things Does to that. Does it violate that. any laws? Uh, l l let me say what we are doing about it. First of all, we are in regular touch with both mayors and their offices. Um, and I'll leave those conversations privately between the federal government and those mayors' offices. But we are trying to be a source of, of support and collaboration as, as they uh, grapple with this. And what's more, there has been federal grant money made available for nonprofits that are working in and with those cities to ensure that those who are being treated as political pawns. I can tell you the nonprofits need more. They are stressed to the breaking point. They, they have federal support, and, and the idea of additional federal support is something we would never take off the table. We always try to calibrate this in a way that's, that's responsible. But I would say that is the, the posture now, to call this out for what it is, to collaborate with the, the cities and mayors who are on the front lines of something that is admittedly new, to be in regular dialogue with them, and to help get the nonprofits that are helping those cities um, uh, deal with this, uh, helping those nonprofits to have the sort of federal support. That and to the governors for. who would say, well, we wouldn't be doing this if you had better control of the border, you would say what? I think I'd probably leave our conversation with, with any governor or any mayor to, to private channels, but it's, it, I'll just reiterate what we've said well, before. All right, it's a political but stunt. No, let me rephrase that. Uh, for the general observation that might be discussed either by a governor or a resident of those states along those lines, if, you had, if there were better control, where these people weren't here, we wouldn't have to put them on buses, you would say. Putting them on buses is a bad idea, or what? What, what would well, you say? I, I, I think we would, we would continue to say that this idea of, uh, of, of busing it to a couple of, of hand-picked cities 
is a political stunt driven by governor's um, desire to use those arriving, uh, often in, in search of, of a better life, for political machinations. And that beyond that, the actual handling of the admittedly hard, uh, at times, aspects of the migration issue is something that we will continue to do responsibly in private. I think you know the answer to this, but there is an allegation that hangs in the air that people who are being processed either for asylum or other immigration purposes and are asked to come back for a hearing never do. I don't believe that's statistically correct, is it? It's not statistically correct that they never do, certainly, and to the extent some That they don't, largely do. Uh, and we are working correct? hard to try... Correct. And we are also working hard to try to... Meaning it's assumed that they are told, report back for a adjudication time, and they never do. They never show up, and they just roam around the country. That's Actually, they go back to the hearings. M- many do, and for those who don't, we are trying to figure out why and whether they are... You know, this... Our migration system is confusing at times. I will confess it can be confusing even for those of us who work on it. It certainly can be confusing for those who are navigating it as part of the process. And to the extent we can provide more information, to the extent we can use technology to make clearer uh, when people are supposed to show up and where, we are also working hard to do that because we feel that that's the responsible role of the federal government in this, too. That is the voice of Josh. Last name rhymes with Seltzer. Geltzer, National Security Council advisor to the... President on Homeland Security Issues, Deputy National Security Counsel, right? Right. Deputy Homeland Security Advisor. Home. There we go. It's an important title, important role. Thanks for the conversation. For our radio audience, we need to say farewell. But for those watching on CBS News Streaming and Paramount Plus, you know who you are. And our podcast, Early Adopters, stay tuned for the Takeout Outtake, especially Al. I'm Major Garrett. We'll see you next week. Welcome to Fail Better. David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low- and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome to your Takeout Outtake Especial. Yes, you know I'm Major Garrett. Cafe du Parc, Willard Hotel, our location. Great to be out and out again. Josh Geltzer is our special guest. Rhymes with Seltzer, Deputy National Security Advisor, Homeland Security, and the National Security Council. We'll get to the funny games in a second. I promise, I promise, I promise. But two real quick things. Back to unlawfully detained Americans. Uh, There was a press report that some in my audience might have seen this week. Former NBA star Dennis Rodman was thinking about going to Russia, now not going to Russia. Is that a good thing? We think it is. And I'll say, I'll say yes for two reasons. Um, first, the Secretary of State has been unusually uh, clear in the public domain in saying that we've already put a significant uh, offer on Which the table. Which we've gone over on this table. To yes. try to resolve Griner and Whelan. And we think that introducing alternate channels, whatever those might even be in this case, or in other cases, really would be unhelpful, detrimental at this point. The second reason it's a good thing if he's not going is that, in general, the State Department is warning Americans not to travel to Russia. The, the risk of 
additional wrongful detention. In as explicit high. language as I believe this government has ever produced. Very explicit. And now with that new D for wrongful detention risk indicator that we talked about earlier, mm-hmm. attached to Russia as one of the countries in the first tranche of, uh, of governments meriting that indicator. Uh, Americans who have drifted in and out of coverage of wrongfully detained Americans and hostages in earlier eras come across the name of Bill Richardson, former governor of New Mexico. Helpful or not helpful in this particular space? So uh, here's what I'll say. In general, we welcome those who care about these issues. We welcome private efforts, which in some circumstances uh, can be extremely useful in trying to uh, get Americans home, which is the goal we and advocates and certainly loved ones and family members share. With respect to Griner and Whelan, I'd really say the same thing that I just said about Dennis Rodman, which is we're at a point where it's this become public. This is government public. to government and stay out. We think that the channel is open to try to resolve this, that the significant offer is on the table through that channel, and that that which might detract or complicate that or distract. is unhelpful. Right. Understood. So, fun and games. We have uh, three threshold questions you might be familiar with as someone who has listened to the takeout, if only for preparatory purposes. And they are as follows. Uh, most influential book in your life and why? All-time favorite movie or one of your favorite movies? And the way I like to help people through that is you're scrolling and you see it and you stop. Hmm. That's the kind of movie that has that kind of pull on you. And uh, you're on a long flight or a long drive and you're really going to jump into some enjoyable music. What kind of music, artist, or genre is that most likely to be? So I'll start with the book. Um, I'll go with John Hersey's A Bell for Adano. Uh, It began as reporting by uh, Hersey when he was a journalist, and then he made it into a a novel, and it tells the story of a U.S. uh, major uh, in uh, post-World War II or occupied um, Italy, and how in his corner of the world he tried to make things a bit better. And I think that's what all of us in government aspire to do and certainly should aspire to the do. The name of the book again? A Bell for Adano by John Hersey. Excellent. Never been mentioned on the takeout before in nearly six years. So well done, sir. Excellent. Favorite movie? Movie? I'm going to go with Dr. Strangelove. Excellent. Uh, I have, have said this uh, to national security law students of mine when I used to teach and to others willing to listen. I think there is a lot that can be learned about deterrence and escalation and misperception and perception in international relations from the brilliance that is that movie. Small factoid in the relationship to Dr. Strangelove. There is another movie on almost the exact same topic, really the exact same topic, called Failsafe, starring Henry Fonda and Larry Hagman. And the movies came out just about the same time, and Henry Fonda was mortified that... He thought people would think Failsafe, which is a very deeply serious movie, was not as effective as Dr. Strangelove, which was this comedic, satiric send-up. Uh, watch them both. They're both on their own levels. Excellent, excellent they are, but They are worth uh, watching both. And then there's probably a reason people mention Dr. Strangelove even, even more often. Even more often, no doubt. Uh, favorite music? I'm going to go here with Chuck Berry. Um, Classic rock and roll guy. Uh, had the pleasure of seeing him once uh, at BB King's Blues Club in, in Times Square growing up, and just rock and roll through and through. And uh, if I'm in a long car ride, I don't think I could ever get tired of. You can't of get tired of Chuck Berry, no doubt, no doubt. Josh, it's been a great pleasure. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Major. And I uh, it. for the benefit of the audience, say your name and your title one last time. 
Joshua Geltzer, and I serve as a Deputy Homeland Security Advisor at the White House. That's what you get at The Takeout, ladies and gentlemen. We'll see you next week. See ya. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Jake Rosen, and Ashley Armstrong. CBSN production by Eric Susanen. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS News. If you like The Takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.